Hello, and welcome to the Grand Stories Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Work Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. Look forward to your being with us. And welcome to Grand Stories, Profiles in Aging podcast. We're joined today by Dr. Kudor Snell, a person who is quite, quite uh, interesting. He has had an illustrious background uh, in a number of areas. Uh, So we're here to talk. And so I'm glad that you're here with us, Dr. Snell. Welcome to Grand Stories. And how are you today? I'm doing well, Dean Cosby. Thank you for the opportunity to engage with you today. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, where'd you grow up? I um, knew it was South Africa, but tell me more specifically, if you would. Sure. I was born in a small rural town called Wellington, which is about an hour away from Cape Town, a very small Afrikaans conservative community where I was born in the same house that uh, I believe my mother was born in and grew up in that house until I was about 12 or 13. And then we were forced by the Group Areas Act of South Africa in 1965 to leave what was an integrated neighborhood at the time. We were latecomers after the apartheid system started you know their laws so we moved to another part of town which was actually closer to the elementary school where I grew went to school where my parents were both teachers so I had all my elementary school education there my mom was my first grade teacher and my father was uh, the last year of my elementary school he he taught there and I have twin sisters seven years younger than me So um, they don't know much about the old house where we grew up in. Uh, They know more about the uh, newer house that we lived in uh, to finish, you know, where I finished elementary school. And so So elementary school was what age or what grade? Or or I know it's a little different system, maybe British. (laughs) Yeah. um, Elementary school is when you're six years old and you go up until you are 12 years old. That's what they call elementary school or primary school. Yeah, we don't have the breakdowns like we have in the U.S. with uh, middle school and junior high and all of that. And we also don't, now they have the grade system. But when I went to school, the first grade uh, was called sub A and then sub B. And then you had standard one, which was the third grade, comparatively speaking. Then you have standard one, standard two, standard three, standard four, standard five is then the last year of elementary school or primary school in South Africa. And so um, uh, what meaningful experiences did you have that obviously shaped you? Obviously, I, I know that it was during a time of apartheid. You yes. mentioned the uh, Act 1965 that helped yes. to uh, further break down what had been an integrated community into a very different place. Um, what happened to your old house? 
You know, that's interesting. It was a beautiful house. Uh, the old house, ironically, was demolished. Uh, you know, oftentimes it was solid. It was a beautiful home. But apparently there were plans to erect a senior citizen housing complex on their four whites only. Uh, and so an old age home, a nursing home, you know, with all the modern facilities was built on the uh, ground that our house once stood on. And is there, is that home actually there now? The, the senior home is there. Our old home is no longer there. It was completely destroyed and demolished. And it's ironic because when my mother needed a place to stay, <laughs> you know, when she was growing older and other relatives in the community, they were not allowed to go and stay there because of the apartheid rules. It's only later on that they slowly became integrated uh, and allowed, you know, the more, uh, what can I say, uh, families who could afford to send their elderly because it was a private institution for very wealthy, older, white uh, persons. So that's very interesting. So we're talking about, uh, about aging and we're talking about uh, stories and you're sharing with us that in uh, the time when you were a child, uh, they actually uh, cast you out of your own home uh, yeah. due to the change in laws, and you had to move. Yes, uh, and can you tell me a little bit about the changes as a result of uh, coloreds and blacks not being able to be in the same communities as whites? Yes. You know, my mother always told the story, Dean Cosby, that when she grew, up as a, grew up as a child in that neighborhood, it was integrated. Her little friends were white Afrikaner, children who came in and out of our so-called colored home, you know, grandparents' home. My first playmates were German siblings who lived right next door to us. And they were very friendly when they first moved in. They came as part of a pact the South African government had with European nations to provide opportunities and jobs for white folks. You know, it was job reservation also, which was another act which prevented local indigenous folks from taking on jobs that were available. They were reserved for whites. So they came with a full passage paid, uh, you know, by boat, got a house, beautiful home next to ours. And so there was uh, excitement, integration. They were my friends. Talked with my mother, the lady, you know, they shared recipes and so forth. They tried to learn Afrikaans. And very soon afterwards, a big fence went up between our two homes. They had then erected a fence to keep us separate and apart. And I could no longer play with the little white German boys. The first word that indicated sort of a sense of racism or uh, hostility or animosity was when this little white German boy called me. In South Africa, it would be the equivalent of the N-word in the United States. In South Africa, when somebody calls you a hot note, that's derogatory, it's an insult, it's a racial slur. So he threw a big guava at me, knocked me on the head and called me that name. 
And since that time, you know, there was separation um, and tension clearly because they had very soon learned the apartheid legacy of keeping folks, you know, don't mix. Uh, although I grew up earlier on and so did my mother because they didn't know apartheid until 48, my, my mother and my, my father. And so... Uh, talking about 1948. That's right. When apartheid started, was institutionalized. Uh, but we only moved out. The here. Nationalist Party of South Africa. That's right. Which, uh, that. which largely <laughs> were the uh, Nazi sympathizers from Germany. That's uh, right. That's yeah. right. Uh, so I, I that, that got me thinking when you were saying that. Uh, so... Did that shape you? Uh, and did your father, who was also a teacher, did he have other work? I, I think you had mentioned a while back at a, when we spoke once that he did do some other work. My father was mostly a teacher. Uh, my mother's father, who I shared a bedroom with in the old house, was a tailor. My mother was a teacher. Uh, my father got involved in politics, so maybe that's what yes. uh, you inferred was that there was some political interest or affiliation, not of the radical kind, but clearly of the social justice kind. And the way it uh, manifested Dean Cosby was, you know, we also had the University Extensions Act of 1959, where the apartheid government said, we are going to give you your own universities, your own tribal universities. So there wasn't one for so-called colored folks. So the University of the Western Cape came about as a result of that, while others institutions in the homelands and in KwaZulu-Natal for Indians and in the rest of the country in the homelands were for Zulus, for Klosas, for Sutus, for Vendas, all separate institutions. Uh, but the University of Cape Town was always there as well as Stellenbosch. And my father just questioned the validity of that. He just asked questions about, isn't this an economic waste? You know, why do we have to have separate institutions? We say it's separate, but equal, but we don't have, you know, the human power, the human capacity. Why are we doing that when folks can all go to the University of Cape Town, which was supposed to be a liberal, progressive, English-speaking university. But that was considered treason because that was interfering with the apartheid politics. And he mentioned this at a staff meeting. And very soon, you know, we have a system of informants where people get paid by the apartheid government. So we believe that someone was appointed to watch my father to listen to what he was saying, uh, to take down the words uh, that he was saying. So there was a betrayal, you know, amongst friends or family, we don't know. And very soon a police van came up onto the playground and they came to arrest my father. Uh, and it was mass detention in, the ninth, in 1964. Uh, they detained many teachers. So my father was one of three no, one of two teachers only at our school. The other one was the woman who taught me in Sabio grade two, Miss um, Adams, she was called then. She married an Englishman and became Mrs. Williams. But they loaded them up 
and arrested them and they were detained for three months without access to legal support. We couldn't visit him. We didn't know where he was. Um, so, wow, that you're taking me back a long way. I haven't been thinking about this for a long, long time. Um, yeah, so that was just, you were asking about my father's interests and other work that he did. Yeah, so he wasn't really um, one of those aggressive politicians. He was just someone like you and me, you know, who was, was questioning the status quo. Uh, but we also know that it was dangerous because many people didn't return from prison. You know, there were mis these mysterious suicides um, or hangings, uh, which we know was instrumental and, you know, instigated by the prison authorities and by the South African government who wanted to silence people and did not want them to, to have a voice. And so uh, your father got out after that three months? He got out after the three months, he was released. And then he and both my uh, teacher, elementary school teacher were placed under house arrest uh, and banned. Um, Dorothy got the harshest punishments in the sense that she was also banished to Wellington. They couldn't leave town without permission. Uh, she had to report every morning, every morning to the police station and sign in in a book. They couldn't leave the house between six at night and six in the morning. We couldn't have more than three people in their company because that was constituted a group. And that was also a contravention of the apartheid system where three people constituted a group and you couldn't meet as a group. So we were never able to celebrate birthdays, Christmases, um, or visit Dorothy and Sia, except one at a time or two of us at a time. Um, her banishment order was lifted. And, you know, they were very tantalizing, these people. They would let her step out of the house and tell her, oh, we've told you now that you're free. Uh, your, your order has been lifted for the next five years. Well, the next thing she knew when she stepped back in, they reissued another banishment order. She got double banishment orders. My father did not get double banishment orders. Uh, and they told us she could not leave the country. Well, there were groups, as you know, also here in the United States, Dean Cosby, who were concerned about social injustices and oppression and, and treatments like that. So there was a Quaker group, and that's why I'm very involved with um, Amnesty International, because they do great work on behalf of pe people in prison who are in prison because of their political beliefs, you know, their conscious beliefs or consciousness uh, and awareness. So somebody, found Dorothy, a Quaker social worker, by the way, um, Anna Pierce, who then advocated for Dorothy and supported her, visited her, you know, because Dorothy couldn't work. My father couldn't work. There was no income uh, because they were not allowed to earn money. Dorothy started a home industry business where she sewed little dresses for the neighborhood children and people, you know, patronized or supported her rather. 
so that she could have some income. Uh, for our family, you know, we would wake up in the morning and on our back porch would be these boxes of food, of vegetables and fruits and breads and, you know, non-perishable foods that people just banded together and left on our doorstep uh, to make sure that we had uh, something to eat. My mother went back to teaching because married women couldn't teach. So she was uh, considered, um, not what is the word? She couldn't be hired as a permanent teacher. They were serving always at the mercy of, but my mother was forced to go back to teach because she was a, a homemaker at the time, most of the time when we grew up. But Dorothy then finally with Anna Pierce's help got what we called at the time an exit permit. They said, fine, we'll, let, we'll allow you to leave the country, but you can never set foot back in South Africa again. And that was so she, her home. That's right. So she left on an exit permit and couldn't return to South Africa. She did return later in the early 90s when things were easing, easing up and she was invited back to come to the University of the Western Cape to work with Albie Sachs, who's one of our progressive human rights judges. And he was very involved in drafting uh, the constitution for South Africa. So Dorothy came back and helped with drafting that constitution. My father in the meanwhile had passed away. So my father wasn't involved you know, at that level um, in the changes in the country, but you know, clearly, uh, was concerned that, you know, there should be a demo democracy. And their motto, was Dean Cosby, was always, we are doing this not for us, the changes, but we are doing this for our children's children. That was their motto, you know, not for us, but for our children's children. So they knew it was going to take a long time to affect any change or to bring about any change. That's uh, remarkable. Uh... That, that has to be, uh, at best, bittersweet and probably very painful. I appreciate your sharing. Um, so during this time of apartheid, can you tell me what a typical day might have been like? Yes. Uh, well, you know, you would get up in the morning in your little place because we lived in an all-colored neighborhood, mixed neighborhood. So you get up, those were the people you would see. You would go to your little school up the street for us, where you went to school with colored teachers, colored children, uh, and played, you know, that was our only world, so to speak. And then you would return and you would just live. But if you wanted to go to the shops, you had to go into town. And I remember a very painful outing with my mother, uh, where we went to a store and, uh, they wouldn't allow her to try on any dresses or any shoes. They said, no, no, you're not allowed to do this. But they allowed things to be sent home, what they called on APRO. So my mother would have to do her shopping that way. And sometimes they wouldn't accept things that were returned. That didn't fit. They said, you know, you asked for this, so you take it. Uh, so there was... And then they charged you for it. Yes. There was a strict boundary with, you know, the colored community and the white 
business community and clearly the white residential areas. We didn't cross over unless you were working there or made a delivery. You couldn't socialize uh, with people of mixed, you know, of other races. You couldn't attend the same church. You couldn't certainly not marry someone outside of your race. Um, and I did not know that there were distinctions in the white group themselves. I always thought the white group was, you know, whites were homogenous. <laughs> I didn't know that there were tensions uh, amongst Afrikaans speaking whites and English speaking whites with very different philosophies, different cultures, different languages. And the Lord forbid their paths should cross because of historical tensions and uh, political, you know, differences. But I did not know that. So we always thought the English speaking whites were our friends. Although Afrikaners were very straight to your face, you knew where you stood with them. When they told you something, you knew how to behave. <laughs> Uh, and if they befriended you, you knew it was a genuine friendship. And with the English, you know, they're very gentle, very subtle. But I always remember our colored librarian uh, in Wellington would say, you know, be careful. The English would smile in your face, but they'll stab you in the back. You know, so we grew up with these messages. Of, so, yeah, we were in terms of growing up in our typical days. Um, you know, it was clearly segregated and separated. And if you lived in town, in an urban environment, you would ride separate buses, or you would sit on the top level of the double-decker bus, and whites would sit, you know, at the bottom and at the front. The trains were segregated like that as well. Uh, and workplaces, of course, uh, offices, salaries were differential based on race. Uh, the kinds of jobs you could do, uh, you know, were separated. I remember as a social worker now, yeah, as an, an adult working in a welfare agency in Cape Town, we would have our own separate tea rooms. We couldn't go out to lunch with our colleagues who were not colored. Um, and social workers with the same qualifications, because I went to the University of, the, of Cape Town after the University of the Western Cape, and had the same qualifications as my white female colleague, social workers, but the salaries were different. They, they earned at least twice as much as I did for the same kind of work, you know, and they could work across racial lines. I could only work with so-called colored clients. So you couldn't work with black clients as no. well, or no? So, so I was always very surprised to understand uh, the the methods of control, and this was obviously another one of those. But um, did the, can you tell me a little bit? The political system was based on uh, whites having a full vote in terms of a political process. Coloreds having was it half a vote, and then yes, and, and then uh, those who were black had no vote. Is that's that, right that, that was the way it was so and i can did that also you, affect you yes and i can tell you how it impacted the education because that as a child i grew up more you know i know my parents couldn't vote as adults never voted in their lives was like i never voted in south africa i wasn't eligible to vote but the educational system was very interesting because education was free and compulsory for whites up until 
the last year of high school. It was compulsory and um, free for so-called coloreds up until the last year of elementary school, primary school. And it wasn't compulsory or mandatory for black children. And if they went to school, they had to pay. So you can understand the hierarchy in terms of who the most educated were and who got opportunities to be educated. Um, but you were asking about voting. Yeah, voting rights were denied colored folks, they couldn't vote. Blacks had to carry, you know, what we call the Dompas. And, uh, you know, Desmond Tutu just turned 90 the other day. And in a church sermon, somebody referred to this Dompas that even Archbishop Tutu had to carry as a black man on his person all the time. And if he didn't have it, he was subject to arrest. And that Dompas said, you can only move in black areas, you cannot do, be in a white era, if you were, you had to show, you know, identification, who you were and what you were doing in those areas. It uh, sounds a little bit like immigration systems and places even in the United States. So that's uh, quite interesting. So when you were subject to that type of uh, treatment, were there folks that obviously um, resisted or that they didn't talk about it? In other words, were they part of a struggle? I think that's what it's called, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, in the struggle. And you know, uh, the great or the best example I have of this, since it wasn't really applicable to colored, colored folks didn't have to carry this don't pass. Blacks had, and I think Indians had, and Gandhi started this protest in Johannesburg when he lived in South Africa, and they had what they called the burning of the storm passes, where people just came and burned them and said, no, we're not carrying this, you know, any citizens like other people. That's right. Exactly. Yes. But, you know, we did have identity documents. I still have mine, <laughs> which I use, which is legitimate. It's the only one they'll accept. And it's, it's coded. And if you know there are codes in there, they don't say uh, race colored, mixed race, Malay or whatever, black or white. You know, it's supposed to be non-racial, but there are codes in there signs of the alphabet that they use that indicates to whoever is in the government what your race is. I see. Yeah. So there's still ways in which they are able to uh, differentiate groups. Yes. Yes, sir. I see. And that was even after Nelson Mandela. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, you obviously understood a lot about reconciliation and the whole effort you mentioned with uh, the 90th birthday of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Yes. Um, did that have any impact on you and your thoughts, given your family and certainly your father suffered greatly as a result of apartheid? Yes, I think that would have probably healed him. You were asking, uh, and I didn't elaborate, what happened to him when he came out. My dad actually came out of that detention, Dean Cosby, a depressed man. He was, he felt dehumanized, demoralized. He wasn't the same person. And when he told about his experiences there, it was just horrific. He would tell us that, you know, there was a naked bulb in his cell that burned all the time. There was a tiny window up 
Now, when he was in solitary confinement, there wasn't a window, I believe. But in terms of torturing, and he didn't talk a lot about it, and I wished I had an opportunity to have asked him more about it. But he would say things like they took away his watch, um, they would put them on hot bricks and had them stand for hours, you know, having them stand on hot bricks that were designed to burn their feet. Yes. And for them to force to release the names of their colleagues who were, you know, a part of their thinking. Um, but I'm sorry, can I go back to your question? You were just asking. Me. No, I, I was just asking uh, how, how had that affected? Oh, the truth and reconciliation. Yes. That's right. I think it might have healed him. Yeah, that's the word. It might have helped. Um, and we think, you know, it was a good step, but there, many people considered that controversial because they were always, they thought that they were owed more than that because people, all they had to do was to admit that they did these atrocities uh, without perhaps real remorse. And then they were free to go. Yeah. You know, and so there was never, I think, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission fell short of talking or instituting reparations. It's only now beginning in terms of District 6, where people like in Wellington, where I grew up, were forcibly removed from their homes, that folks are now slowly trickling back into District 6, where they've given you know, land, uh, but it's not the same as you know, the cultures changed. This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Works Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HU underscore gerontology, G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III, Professor of Music at Howard University. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Thank you for listening.